Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome to Stupidity, home of the greatest media mind ever to walk the planet. Okay, so here's the deal. He's a true icon in every sense of the word. He's loved and feared. More than any being to grace this planet. There's two guys. Hey, a man with a voice that sounds like Barry White and Beyonce had a Jewish baby. God himself would pay $39.99 for a cameo. Fact of the matter is, you are about to embark on a transcendent experience that can only be described as psychological nudity. This is Stu Gops, and this is Stupidity. Here we go, Jim. Billy, I have a question for you. Okay. Do I talk too much golf on stupidity? I mean, um, no, I mean, it's fine. Stupidity is kind of like your, your thing and. This is your outlet to talk golf. You can't do it much on the main show. I, I don't know, though. I mean, Mikey, what do you think? I was just going to ask if you think he talks more golf on stupidity or Jets on God Bless Football. Wow, that is an interesting question. Right, because uh, yeah, because you're sprinting away from the Jet discussion, Mikey. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I didn't. I, I don't. Uh, I don't judge. I'm just asking which one is more. It, it, it's a It's it's fair criticism. It is. <laughs> and if you think I talk too much golf here, that's also fair criticism. <laughs> I mean, so the Jets. Obviously, you talk about Aaron Rodgers. You talk about the expectations leading up to the season. Then you talk about the Rodgers injury, and then obviously you have to talk about Kirk Cousins possibly going there because he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. They get two of those in the same season. Right. Of course. Then they beat the. Eagles, and they almost beat the Chiefs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're doing things to... It's not like we're talking about the Raiders every week, you know? Like, they're doing things. Yes. I mean, the Jets are... They're in market number one. They're an interesting story. They For the first time ever, Mike, our team is interesting, which is why I keep talking about it. But I keep talking about the Dolphins, too, because they're the best team in the NFL. So, I'm just playing the hits, I guess. I don't know. But the golf, I I wonder if golf is a tune-out for most people. We're going to have Alan Shipnuck on. He's been on before. He wrote the book on Phil Mickelson. He's now writing a book about the merger between the PGA Tour and Live Golf and how it all went down and how it happened, and he's great. I am fascinated by this stuff, but I have a feeling it's a tune-out for you, Billy. No, I mean, I'm open to it. Yeah, I feel like I'm coming around. You know me. I'm a big golf guy, if you notice. The clubs. Yeah, yeah, the the clubs. Well, 
The story behind that is uh, the, the answer is they're they're right here, right off camera. Oh. I just I just I just moved them out of the shot because we had Raheem Mostert on earlier right. this week for God bless football later in the week. Yes. Um, and the last time he was on, Sugats pointed them out because they were being chummy, talking about golfing together and being good friends, the two of them. Right. And then they started uh, making fun of the golf clubs that I had in the background, which really exists there because I don't have any other place to put them. Um, and then Raheem Moster was making fun of me. So when we had Raheem on again, I thought, you know what, I'm going to move these so that the golf clubs do not become a topic of discussion again. Uh, and then I simply forgot to put them back behind me for a book about golf. So I'm really, I'm really killing it today. I uh, I asked Billy uh, earlier offline, Mikey. I, I said uh, I, I asked him about the golf clubs, and he said those golf clubs are shitty. And I said the golf clubs are fine, Billy. It's the guy who's using them that's shitty. Well, you didn't say all that. You, you strongly implied it because uh, he was talking about a golf <laughs> he outing once. I mean, yeah, he was. He's talking about a golf outing. I'm like, I mean, he's like going to take your, your shitty golf clubs, and I'm like, are you going to take your golf clubs? I'm like, yeah, they're not the best golf clubs. He's like, it's not the golf clubs. I'm like, okay, unnecessary. Like, <laughs> I get it. I did. I've been back at you. So unnecessary. unnecessary. I'm sorry. So buddy. I think. So Stu, I think you should play with those golf clubs. They're uh, they're not that's fine. lefties. Will, yeah. Billy will play with mine. I'm a lefty. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm a lefty. Billy's a righty. What are we gonna? We can't do that. I still don't yeah, understand that. Ones. I still don't understand that because you're not a lefty at everything. So it, it's weird. I I don't understand it either. To be to be quite honest with you, I am any. Any sport that involves a stick or a club, baseball, hockey, lacrosse, golf, I'm a lefty. Mm -hmm. But when I throw, I'm righty. I write with my right hand. I'm a strange guy, Billy. Yeah, agreed. In case you haven't noticed. Uh, Are you excited for this? Alan Shipnuck, he's a great author. He's been on with us three times now. (laughs) I am excited. I'm also starting to like, so I'm piecing this together, Mikey. So, we have the golfers on right after they win a big tournament because two guys wants to talk to them because they're winners. And then sure. we, we have that that's worked out, Billy, because Wyndham Clark we had on after he won like just a you know run of the mill PGA event, and then he won the US Open. So Yeah. Well, and we got him after that too. And we got him after that, right. Yeah, but also I'm starting to realize you're talking to the golf authors so you don't have to read the book. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. It's a good yeah. strategy. Yes. Tell me about your book. Yes. So I don't have to read it. I mean, honestly, who has time to read nowadays? Like, for real. It's so, it's so like, I, I appreciate you guys coming on. I, I want right. to support what you're doing. But, like, sure. you want me to commit, like, hours and hours to sitting down and mm-hmm. reading the book? Like, if I have hours and hours, I'm going to be doing something I want to do. It's not yeah, reading your book. A, Go get the book, book, though. It's out now. That's a, thank you. <laughs> He's been very good to us. He's a very nice guy. He's got a great head of hair. Uh, that has been a theme for Billy, though. He feels like our show puts out too much content. He does, and he's right. I mean, well, who has time to listen to all this? No, I told I told Sugat, so I was in jury duty earlier this week, and I told him that I had an idea where I was just going to take notes on the entire episode and come in with notes the next day. And then I started that process and was like, Oh man, this is a lot. This is a lot of audio listening mm-hmm. that I need to do. And my plan was to do it in the car drive on the way home from jury duty on the way into work. And I was like, I, I, they were long drives, and I ran out of time. <laughs> and you would never listen in your house, right? Like, who does that? It's not that I wouldn't. It's that I just like you. Mikey gets it. You got it at a time. There's just when it's impossible yeah you know? there's not enough time you're right especially with where you guys are at in your lives right now there's, there's, a, there's a lot of walls that need to be stared at blankly 
before I can start doing things like that. I wish I had wall staring time, honestly. I miss it. How much would you pay just to stare at a wall the entire day? A good wall stare? So you want to know something funny? A good wall stare. You want to know something funny? Um, so, like, we work with different people, and one of the people that we work with helps us with guests. Um, so, like, yesterday she was reaching out and asking me, like, making suggestions, like, would you take this person? Would you take that person? And I, I text her back. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry that I haven't really gotten back to you today. I'm in jury duty, so like I, I got to check it a little later, and I'll get back to you. To which she replied, um, "Oh wow, you have jury duty on top of everything else you have going on." She goes, "Honestly, jury duty sounds like it's probably like a nice break for you." And I thought about it. I'm like, you know what? It was a really slow day. Maybe I should have tried harder to get on a jury. I should have just chilled there for like four days, just sit there in the AC listening to a case. You know, not a care in the world. Yes. Yeah. Free lunch brought to you. Yup. Yeah, you don't have yeah. to deal with your kids. You don't have to deal with your dogs, your wife. Most importantly, you don't have to deal with me. I mean, so I had a crazy. I had a crazy. Um, it was like six or seven months after my first daughter was born, um, and I had a kidney stone, and I I got like admitted to the hospital because they needed so to put like painkillers and all this stuff. Right? Yeah. It's not the first time that I've had it, but I got admitted, and and I was there, and like. You know, my daughter's just a baby, and my mom was there at the beginning. And then I told her, like, you just, you know, go home. Why are you going to stay with me in the hospital overnight? And, like, whatever, I'll figure it out. So I stayed alone at the hospital, like, going through the kidney stone because I just sent everybody home. Great night of sleep. I mean, it was probably it was probably the Toradol and everything that they had, like, pumped into me. But, like, man, I always thought, like, being alone in the hospital would be, like, really depressing and terrible and even though i was there i was like sad i'm like but man i got a good like four straight hours this is great are you rooting for another kidney stone <laughs> i'm drinking soda i'm not drinking water i'm doing everything <laughs> red meat i'm just like in it like <laughs> not even cooking the meat cook me up some stones you know what i mean <laughs> i do know what you mean <laughs> let's get to alan shipnuck i love you billy Stu Gatz here for my friends over at Miller Lite. A lot's changed over the years. One thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So, what is the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. I have been enjoying ice-cold Miller Lights for as long as I can remember. In fact, I enjoyed some over the weekend. As the Knicks beat the Sixers in advance of the second round, me and my friends, we sat around, we celebrated. With ice-cold Miller Lights, what did we do? We made fun of Joel Embiid. Oh, I love it. The Knicks. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash stew. Or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer. Oh my gosh. Folks, gather around. Everyone gather around. Listen to these words. The NBA playoffs are heating up and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook. An official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more. Don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. And if you're new to DraftKings, you gotta check this out. New customers, listen to me. You bet just five bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use code DAN. That's code DAN for new customers. And you get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. That's insane. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours.
Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY-467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly. On behalf of Boot Hill Casino Resort in Kansas, 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.co slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Alan Shipnuck going to join us. He is a great author. He's a regular on the show. He has a new book out, Live and Let Die, the inside story of the war between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. What's going on, Alan? <laughs> I'm delighted I've been upgraded to regular. Thanks for having me again. Uh, I appreciate it. I mean, it's your third. Stop writing books and, we'll, I, and we won't bring you on anymore. I mean, enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's... Uh... This, this will be a lively conversation. Uh, I'm, I'm here to answer any questions. Fire, fire away. Uh, why'd you write the book? Let's start there. I think this is the biggest golf story of the century. You know, certainly non-Tiger Woods division. And it's um, an incredible mix. Uh, you have these these blockbuster protagonists. I mean, every golfer who's mattered over the last quarter century, including Tiger and Phil, but obviously Rory and Bryson and Brooks and Dustin. And, um, and then you have, you have Donald Trump, you have Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. You have this guy, Yasir Al-Ramayan, who's now runs professional golf to some degree. Um, so just, just this incredible cast. And then you've got these like big Shakespearean themes about around, you know, greed and betrayal and vengeance and legacy, and loyalty, I mean, stuff transcends golf, transcends sports. I mean, it's really so such a human story. And then these incredibly complex geopolitical questions around the Saudi money and sports washing and, um, all, and all this playing out in real time. I mean, it just, it was a fascinating project. I learned so much about so much. And I've, you know, I spent obsessively followed this story. Um, and I, I don't think anyone, else could could bring that level of attention so i feel like i'm kind of a tour guide for fans who know part of it or they they've tuned in here and there but they want to know more and they want to really know the inside tale of of what actually happened because there's been so much spin and there's been so much um propaganda so you know hopefully i succeeded just bringing it all together in one place and it's educated educational but more importantly it's entertaining I have a two-parter here. So one, how surprised were you, I guess, when there was a merger of sorts? And two, do you wish it would have happened after the book came out? Uh, No, I'm delighted it happened when it did, because if the book had gone to print and then this came down, I would have been devastated. You know, it would have been a gaping hole in the story. Um, And people said, well, how can you put the book out now? We don't know how how it ends, but I would argue that we do. I mean, there's only three possibilities, like either this framework could this framework agreement will get consummated, it'll blow up, or what's emerging is the most likely scenario where the Saudis bring in some, their, some other outside investors come in, private equity, and the Saudi stake is is diluted a little bit in, in their influence. And that makes it more palatable for the public, for the players, and for Congress, most importantly. So, um, But I lay out all three scenarios in the last chapter, and I, I think I'm covered come what may. But... Um, the original final chapter before all this stuff happened, right, as you know, at the end of the, the the timeline, was that I was kind of forecasting how it could play out, and I I did anticipate a, a quote unquote merger, but I thought it was going to take a lot longer. Like the speed and the secrecy was kind of stunning, but 
golf has to come back together. There's not enough stars to support even one tour, let alone two. And to try and reintegrate um, all the top players into the, the big events is, is really important for the sport. And um, so it makes sense to try and to try and put it back together. But it's impressive the way, I mean, the PGA Tour is not good at a lot of things, but they're really good at keeping a secret apparently because uh, even their top players didn't know this was happening. So it was definitely a thunderbolt, but I am happy that I was able to write about it and, and report on it and, and bring bring some insight and analysis to it. Alan, can you can you tell us the details around how the idea for the Live Tour was hatched? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an it, in some ways this book's like the biography of an idea because this whole thing started this one nerdy golf fan in London named Andy Gardner. He's a lawyer. He watches a lot of golf, and he just like probably a lot of us felt like. And gotten a little tired and a little bloated and it needed to be refreshed. And so he was pretty well-connected guy. <clears throat> Excuse me. He started talking to stakeholders in the game, including Rory McIlroy and Keith Pelly of the European tour. And he started filling up these, you know, yellow legal tablets with his ideas. And ultimately this led to the birth of the premier golf league, which was um, a reimagination of the professional game. Um, and but Andy Gardner was an idealist. He was not a closer. He could never quite launch it. He never had enough money to lure the players or to get the Premier Golf League. But he did bring in the Saudis as investors. That was one of their footholds in professional golf. And they pledged $500 million. But when the Premier Golf League failed to launch, the Saudis realized, we don't need this guy. We can do it ourselves. And they basically just cut and pasted his entire idea and put all their resources and created Live Golf. But it's incredible that the sport has been shaped so much by basically an outsider with a dream. And uh, he didn't get it across the finish line, but he was, he was the spark. You uh, well, why did the PGA, was there anything the PGA tour could have done to prevent this from happening? Yeah. I mean, Gardner tried to forge a partnership with the PGA tour to bring um, the PGL events under the banner of the PGA Tour, kind of a tour within a tour. And he put a full court press on Rory when he was, because he was now part of the board of directors and he was trying to get a meeting with Jay Monahan. Monahan would not take the meeting. Like he just didn't want to give any oxygen to this potential competitor. It works. He was able to kill the PGL, but he tried the same playbook with the Saudis, but they had the money and the resolve to get it done. And so, um, one of the it, it's one of the kind of emotional high points of the book, I think, is when the Saudis break from the PGL, they decide they're gonna they're gonna try and get into professional golf in a huge way on their own. Their number two guy, his name is Majed Al Saror, he sends a letter to Jay Monahan saying, We want to partner with the tour, we want to invest in the tour. And he sends us and Monahan he he refuses to even take pick up the phone and talk to this guy. And then he, he won't have he won't even give the letter or the details to his full board of directors. Finally, one of the player directors says, "Why are we not talking to the Saudi guys?" It was Charlie Hoffman. And Monahan says, "We do not negotiate with someone who's trying to ruin the PGA Tour. Like we are at war. We are at war. At war. At war." And he said this in a board meeting. And um, you know, no one's ever known about this letter or about about all the stuff that happened behind the scenes. And that was like my mandate for the book was to bring this stuff that all happened in secret and bring it out into the sunlight for fans and other stakeholders to understand how we got to this moment. And that's a foundational part of the story is Monaghan's refusal. And of course, he goes on to demonize the Saudis and their money and make this a moral argument. He brings the 9-11 families into the conversation. 
but ultimately the tour runs out of money and he has to go with his tail between his legs to try and to try and forge a compromise and if you if you gave jay monahan a time machine i'm sure when that letter lands on his desk with a thud that he would pick up the phone and make the phone call because um but it, whether it was, it was hubris whether it, it was bad business acumen whether he overrated the value of the pga tour to its players um he made he made the wrong call at, at a critical moment how and when did greg norman get involved <laughs> i mean it starts it starts in the 90s when norman had this idea for a world tour that was going to be a a competitor to the pga tour and he got a fellow australian iconoclast rupert murdoch to fund it and norman his fatal mistake was he didn't he he didn't talk to the tour he didn't talk to other players he kind of acted unilaterally and they the backlash was so severe that Norman became a pariah in the game. You know, the PJ Tour commissioner, Tim Fincham, killed the idea, and then he stole it. Once again, you know, history repeats itself, and he created the World Golf Championships, and he just flat-out stole the idea. And Norman has been embittered ever since, and he's nursed this grudge against the tour. He's never let go of this idea that golf should be more global, which is probably a good idea, and he's probably right on the merits. Um, But he finally found someone to buy into the vision, and it was these Saudis who were you know, kind of blinded by his star power and his charisma. And they didn't really, I think, fully understand because they were outsiders that how toxic Greg Norman is. And by making him the head of live golf, um, in some ways that was an act of war against the establishment. And that's, that helped perpetuate the, 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 um, the bitterness and the divides. But yeah, so Norman's had this idea, you know, going back to the early nineties, it's incredible that it's finally come. It's finally happening. It's fascinating. Alan Shipnuck is with us. New book is out, Live and Let Die, the inside story of the war between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. You spoke to so many fascinating people who are involved in this story. And so I'm asking you for the medal stand of shocking things that you discovered while you were putting this book together. Bronze, silver, gold, like just shocking (laughs) things you found out as you were putting this thing together. Yeah, that's um, that's a thought-provoking question. Um, you know, there's the Mickelson biography. You know, there's probably not an earthquake on the on par with you know his quote about the scary mofos and and all that. Like that was that was a thunderbolt. Um, but yeah, I would say the that's your gold is what you're saying. Like yeah, like there's, no, I mean, I'm saying that's that's a high standard. The gold for this okay. book, I think, okay. gold has to be what we were talking about with with Monahan, the letter, the board meeting, yes, the this declaration of of uh, of really of, of war, and so that would be number one. The silver medal, I think, um, it probably it has to be the com. And it's hard to pick out one. I would just say the complexity of the characters throughout this whole book, because there's not a lot of like black and white, good guy, bad guy. It's much more nuanced. And so like, you know, Jay Monahan, for all his mistakes, he did make, he did make, he, he did lead the tour through COVID masterfully and he did kill the, the PGL and he has gotten his players a two or three time X, you know, raise, which is his mandate. So you is he is he the hero or the villain? I mean, he's kind of both. Same with Norman. You know, this guy Yashir Al Ruman, he would make a great bad guy. You know, he's kind of this shadowy figure from the other side of the world. He's got all the money and all the power, but he does love golf. He, he believes in golf. He's a purist. Like his, his 
as an ambassador for the sport, as a, as a missionary, like he, he believes in what he's selling. Like it can be a vehicle to, to create relationships and to change societies. And so like, I guess the silver medal is all these guys who pop in and out of the story who are, are more three-dimensional than we presumed and their right. motivations are more interesting. And it's not just greed. Like it's been very easy to dismiss the live players and say, they just sold out and took the money. Um, obviously that's true on some level, like the money was the inducement, but like Bryson DeChambeau told me, and there was like actual pain in his voice, you know, six years in a row, he tried to get elected to the player advisory council on the PGA tour which is a really a nothing organization it has no power but it's like being it's like like running for office in junior high you know it's a popularity contest right. he wanted to be asb president and six years in a row his peers rejected him and he's like i guess they just don't like me and they don't like my ideas like he was wounded he had to go to live golf to be to have a voice and to have a leadership position and to be validated and so obviously the money was a factor no one's gonna say that's not true but there was more in, in play there and um so um, I mean, those are 10 different examples, but the no, silver medal is, yes. is the, it's the humanity. Right. Um, I mean, <laughs> the bronze, I, there's, there's so many things in this book that make me laugh. Um, well, give me one uh, of those. That's what I'm looking for. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, here, let me call this up because I, I can find the text. It's, okay. um, you know, Paul Casey, who was a, an ambassador for UNICEF mm-hmm. and he refused to go play in the Saudi uh, tournament for for years because he felt you know he talked about the kids in Yemen from the bombing who were who were starving and and all this and that and it was a, a very principled stance and then he goes to live golf and like completely tosses all that stuff aside and naturally he 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 came up for some criticism and he was defensive about it so at, at the British Open in, in 2022 it's his first tournament uh, since he went to live golf where he's he's kind of back in mixing with with players from other tours and jamie weir who's become a a source of some intrigue in in the golf media he goes up he's a sky sports reporter he goes up to to ask casey if he can do an interview and you know casey is immediately on the defensive and um and he says what do you want to ask me about and weir says well um you know talk about it's the open how's your back feeling uh and I'll, i'll end with like a live question and you know casey says you know when he hears it's going to be about live. So this is from the book. I'm going to read this part because it's so funny. Okay. This is, this is Jamie Weir speaking. He says, his face darkened. He said, fuck off. Go fuck yourself. What a fucking shit question. Go fuck yourself. That's a shitty fucking question from a shitty fucking reporter. And I said, Paul, you're massively overreacting to this. He was like, no, I'm not. Go fuck yourself. Fuck you and fuck your interview. <laughs> this is a golf book. And then, so I, I call up Casey, you know, after I've heard this from Jamie Weir, cause of course I needed to get his side of the story. And so Casey says, that's a fairly accurate recounting. Um, but what is missing is the fact he sauntered over, invaded my space and interjected himself into an environment where he was not invited. What he actually said was, this is probably going to be the last major championship you ever play. He's just assuming I'm going to fail. I could have won that open and been exempt for another 25 years. I was there grinding on my game and it was his smugness that got me. I can debate with anybody, but he was just being a dickhead. You know what? Jamie Weir can go fuck himself again. (laughs) (laughs) That's the gold medal right there. (laughs) I mean, it's so unbelievably funny, but um, 
what it speaks to is the energy around this story, the the bitterness, the um, the, just the raw emotion, even the embarrassments. You know, the embarrassment. The yeah. the you know, Paul Casey, his legacy is at stake, right? Like he's spent twenty years winning golf tournaments around the world. He's always conducted himself as a gentleman. I think he's a mostly liked figure in the sport he goes to live and all of a sudden he knows that everyone's pounding him and he just snaps. He just totally loses his mind. And it, it tells you how deep this ran and how personal it was. This wasn't just a business story. It was just a golf story. I mean, this is about like humanity. And um, so I, it's obviously it's funny, but it's also poignant because um, that's how, that's how much was bottled up inside of him and everybody went to live. I want to uh, give Weir a golf clap just for pissing off Casey that much. <laughs> that is outstanding work by him, man. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, honestly, like, I've, I've been on the receiving end of that. Even, like, earlier this, you know, last week, Justin Thomas came at me on Twitter. And, you know, his his critique, you know, he said, I'm sick of Alan Shipnuck, like, not writing more positive things about golf. It's like, it's such an eye roll. We are in the middle of the most contentious period in the history of the sport. And it is not my role to whitewash it. And I'm not a publicist. I'm a reporter. And, you know, my job in this book, uh, and I, I, I wasn't pro-live. I wasn't pro-tour. Like, I played it down the middle. It was just to tell the story completely accurately and fairly about what really happened. And, you know, for, for Justin to be so bent out of shape because I'm not parroting the official version of the PGA Tour and I'm not celebrating um, you know, these guys who screwed a lot of things up, like it's very revealing. And, you know, he also, also in that tweet, he said something about, you know, I'm sick of Alan Trump, like making money, you know, writing stories. It's like, he's going to make more money finishing dead last at a no cut elevated tournament, which only exists because of live golf. Right. Um, then anyone on the golf beat is going to make this year, but the pros have gotten so greedy. They're so voracious. It's never enough. And that's part of this story too. I mean, it's, it traces this corrosive effect of money that came into the sport in a way uh, unparalleled amounts. Um, and it became like this, this x-ray machine of the soul for a lot of these guys. And uh, it didn't reflect well on a lot of them. And again, it's not my role to whitewash that. Like, this is who they are. These are the choices they made. And so um, that, that Justin's so been out of shape that I'm trying to do my job, I thought said more about him than about me, honestly. Who turned down the most amount of money? Well, um, um, Hideki Matsuyama. He would have been the highest paid player on Live Golf because even before Live launched, Norman had ID'd him as, as their primary target because the thinking was if, if you get Hideki, you get the entire Asian market and you, it would, they would, you would get all these blue chip companies to, to, to be sponsors. And so um, he, he was offered over 300 million dollars and he turned it down so oh that's that, he's the clear answer but then you could also say tiger it never even got to the point of an official offer because he had made his disdain clear but what's interesting is um they were going to give him his own franchise on live like you know there's these other captains like like phil and bryson brooks they have 25 percent equity in those teams um they're going to give Tiger 100% of the team, but they're also going to give him equity in Live itself um, as an enterprise that that can that potentially can create a lot of revenue. And so, you know, one of the executives who was part of the negotiations told me like, there's a lot of goats who buy a franchise. You know, whether it's Derek Jeter or now it's Tom Brady, 
but we're going to make him the goat of all goats. And he was going to own part of the league itself, you know, like that's unheard of. So it's hard to put a value on what that could have been worth, but you know, their, their, their ultimate goal is to sell these franchises for $500 million. I mean, you could come, you know, Norman said it was high nine figures. That's probably optimistic because it's a lot of speculative money, but um, no doubt it would have been a windfall for tiger potentially. So those, those are the two answers, but you know, a lot of guys turned down a lot of money. Ricky Fowler turned down $75 million. So did Patrick Cantlay. Um, You know, Fowler's near the end of his career. He he won once and it's been like this renaissance, but now he's got to do it again and again and again, even ever sniff anything close to that. Um, And then, you know, Cantlay's become this lightning rod because he's on the board of directors and he's known, to be a device of force and trying to get this framework agreement um, consummated. And when you know you turned down $75 million, now you understand why you're so salty about the whole thing. So a lot of guys turned down a lot of money. Live and Let Die is out right now. The inside story of the war between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. Alan Shipnuck, the author, is is joining us. So many fascinating names that are involved in this. So I'm just going to say a name and you tell me what their role was in, in this whole Live PGA Tour thing, okay? Donald Trump. I mean, it goes back the chapter five of this book. I trace the history of Saudi Arabia going, going back to when the oil was discovered in 1938 and the road to nine 11, the, the rise of MBS, the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. It's like, what is this doing in a golf book? But it's so germane to why they are investing billions of dollars into sports, washing their reputation through golf, because they've, as Phil accurately said, you know, MBS is a scary motherfucker and they're trying to cleanse his reputation for the Western world. And after Khashoggi was killed, the only ally that MBS had in global politics was the president of the United States, Donald Trump. And he helped keep him in power. And, and he said to Bob Woodward, like I saved his ass, like Trump knew it. And now Trump is hosting these live golf events, being paid millions of dollars by the public investment fund. And on some level, it's a thank you for his advocacy. And um, it's the Trump live nexus has been very um, problematic for live. You know, he, the first event at Bedminster, he had that MAGA rally where he had Tucker Carlson and Marjorie Taylor green. And that really damaged live in the marketplace because big brands are apolitical. They, they don't want any controversy. And so Liv was out there trying to cut deals with all these, these blue chip corporations. They saw that and they all ran for the hills. And, you know, three of the events this year on the Live schedule are at Trump properties. Like he's in, he's an integral part of what Live Golf has been. And so he's just a complicating factor in all of it. Yeah. One of those is in Miami this week. So that's, uh, yep. that's kind of interesting at Trump Doral. Uh Jack Nicholas. I mean, it's kind of funny because Jack Nicholas wound up suing himself and Saudi money was in the center of it. You know, he he sold 51% of his interest in the Jack Nicholas companies and the company wound up suing the man himself. And the, the centerpiece of the whole lawsuit was that Jack wanted to take the Saudi money and become part of the live leadership as his figurehead. And the company had to talk him out of it because it would have damaged their brand so much. And then Jack wound up countersuing for slander for some of the statements that were made around this. And again, it's like, and Jack is also close friends with Donald Trump. He famously endorsed him in, in the 2020 presidential election and uh, I'm sorry, 2016. And, um, and so it's just been, it's been a very messy um, 
late period in Jack's life. I mean, he's 80 something years old. He should just be this grand old man of the game. And, but the Saudi money, the Saudi influence has even besmirched Jack Nicholas. And it's fascinating to unwind all that in the book. How much uh, money was he looking to get? Yeah. Well, so that's, that's disputed. Um, he, Jack himself said they, they had offered him a hundred million dollars um, to, to basically have the Greg Norman role, which doesn't really track because at 82 years old, is Jack going to go to 14 events around the world and be part of every business meeting and every Zoom call? Like, obviously not. The Live guys told me they were going to create a more ceremonial position. Like, they're talking about the Jack Nicholas Trophy that would go to you know the individual champion on their points race every year. Um, and what what was interesting about this reporting this book is everyone was always spinning me and telling me things that didn't check out. And so they had the crux of lawsuit is this meeting that happened in florida between the live people and jack and his associates and what was said and what happened is is the centerpiece of this lawsuit and so after months of cajoling begging threatening i finally got two people to talk to me one was a live golf executive who was there in the room the other was one of jack's inner circle he was there in the room too and their description of what happened were polar opposites. It was like they were not even in the same place at the same time. And it tells you how much bullshit is floating around. So I wasn't in the room. I don't know what happened. I couldn't get anyone else there to talk to me. So what's the truth? Um, it's unknowable from my perspective. So what I did is I just printed back to back the statements from both parties and let the reader kind of decide who they really believe. And uh, there might be a little shadowing of some of the the words and the setup like i might have tipped my hand slightly but um you know ultimately that was one of the great challenges in this is that there was like this information war that was playing out in the, in this in this saga certainly on social media definitely in press conferences without a doubt and all these private chats between jay bonahan and, and his players and so that was the challenge was to constantly cut through all that and get to the heart of the story and tell it in a in a, a complete and accurate way. Dustin and Paulina Johnson. <laughs> like how? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, Dustin is a crucial piece in all this. He was the only blue chip player who signed up for the first live event. And it was because it's when of I him. knew it was real, Alan is when Dustin signed up for it. 1 million yeah. percent. Yeah. And if they hadn't gotten him, they would, it would have, it could have folded overnight because they had nobody else. Right. D Dustin gave it credibility. And he's the reason why the next week, Bryson and Patrick Reed signed on. And he's the reason why Taylor Gooch went as well. Like, and those are in some ways the three most important players because they're, they're in their primes, you know, Gooch Reed and, and Bryson, like they were risking a lot to give up on the PGA tour. And so, you know, Dustin was crucial in, in the launch of live and, He's been in his own way. He's been a great ambassador for Liv because everyone likes Dustin. He he has not talked any shit to the other players. He did not participate in the lawsuits. He he just kept his mouth closed and cashed the checks. And I think that that helped you know simmer things down. You had you know Phil's been very uppity, uh, Lee Westwood, Ian Poulter. They've been chirpy, but. You know, Dustin kind of stayed above the fray and is like, okay, well, I can't totally hate Liv because I like Dustin. I like watching him play, and he's not a bad dude. So he he's meant a lot to Liv Golf. All right, last two, and we'll let you go here. Uh, Rory. Yeah, Rory's a fascinating character in this book. I mean, he's certainly been celebrated as, you know, the conscience of golf and as this kind of this white knight um, uh, for the PGA Tour. And, and he has put himself on the line, but 
he's also been a troll throughout this whole thing. He's taken a lot of personal shots and it's funny when, you, you know, this war of words he's had with Greg Norman, you know, I laid out in the book, it starts over some pity text messages. Like he, he went on this global campaign to discredit Norman basically because Norman sent him a text he didn't like, like it shows you how like thin skin and petty these guys can be. Crazy. Um, but you know, Rory's kind of a tragic figure in this because he was an idealist and he put his heart on the line to, um, to try and defend the tour. And then the money guys came in, the Jimmy Dunn's and these cold-blooded boardroom warriors, and they ripped open Rory's chest cavity and they tore out his heart and they stomped on it in soft spikes. And uh, it was hard to see it happen in real time. And, you know, Rory's become pretty disillusioned by the whole thing. And I think he's going to pull back from from public advocacy and from any kind of governance stuff. And maybe that's good for him. He'll just focus on winning golf tournaments because he got really sidetracked in, in this whole kind of war of words. All right. So that was the last name for me because this person, he's been on my podcast and I know him. And this is fascinating. Uh, Jimmy Dunn, because for so many different reasons, him and Rory are really were were really, really close. I don't know if they still are, but they were really close, played golf together all the time. So Explain to the audience who Jimmy is. He's a board member at Augusta. He runs Seminole uh, and how he was involved in all this. Yeah, he's a mythical figure in, he really is. in, yeah. in the golf world. Reputed to be the first guy to become a member simultaneously at Augusta National, Pine Valley, Seminole, and Cypress Point. Those are the those are the four leading clubs in America. And so if you're going to be a member of all of them, like he's just a beloved figure in the golf world. And he's a legend in, in the business world, too. You know, he's um he's he's done everything you can do and he's made all the money and he's 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 given it all to charity and um it should also be pointed out that his business was deeply impacted by 9-11 so i was just going to go there so yeah so sandler o'neill they they had an office on like 120th floor one of the towers and i think of the 83 employees like 69 died on 9-11 and jimmy dunn um, put all the all the the kids who lost a parent paid for all their college. They paid the the salaries of every employee who was lost for ten years. Like nine eleven affected him on a very fundamental level. And by the way, golf saved his life because instead of being in the office that day, he was trying to qualify for the U.S. Mid Am. Like he was he was out playing golf, and otherwise he would have been in that tower too. And right. so, um, um, he was brought onto the board in November two thousand twenty-two to help forge this armistice because he has unique people skills and ability to move in these very rarefied circles. And he's the guy who salvaged this whole truce for, from the tourist perspective. But it came at tremendous personal cost. Um, not only is he close friends with Rory, like he got Rory's dad, a former bartender, into Seminole. Like that—that's you know—that's for the ruling class. That's the inner sanctum. They don't have like old bartenders there. And um, so for. Um, you know, for to have to, it speaks on some level to Jimmy Dunn's credibility. Like he has his fiduciary duty as a board member to do what's best for the tour. And he, they had to cut this deal, even though it was going to come at tremendous personal cost to him. And he still did it. But um, because he's been so outspoken about 9-11, it put him in this, this very delicate position where he had to defend this deal, this partnership with the Saudis. And he went on this golf channel and he kind of, he kind of cracked, you know, I think the pressure got to him and he said, you know, cause he was asked about partnering with the Saudis and he said, these guys have nothing to do with 9-11, but if I find anyone who did, I'll kill them myself. Right. And it was just like exploded out of him. And it tells you how deep these passions are and the cognitive dissonance of so many people in this story where um, they, 
there was so much going on and it was so they were so conflicted and that's why it's such an incredible human story because it's not just about golf it's about it's about these big themes um and um you know, Jimmy Dunn got, got caught up in the middle of all of it, as did pretty much everybody in golf. And um, this story touched everyone. And and to, to peel back the layers and, and, and to tell it, you know, in, in one place was was a, an almighty challenge, but it was also like a heck of a lot of fun. I can't imagine Jimmy wanted to do this. In fact, I'm guessing he did not want to do this, but he had in his mind, he was saving the PGA Tour, correct? Yeah, he doesn't. Listen, the last thing Jimmy Dunn needs is all this hassle right. and all this controversy yes get hauled in front of congress to testify like he could be out there playing golf at you know at cypress point that's a lot more pleasant jimmy but... dunn could start his own tour if he wanted to I mean... exactly so <laughs> right. it does like he's a principled guy and that i think part of why this book is interesting is because these the the the, the care the protagonists are so nuanced and so there's so much to unpack with jimmy dunn and i had fun telling stories about who he is and and why he's so revered and the average golf fan never heard of Jimmy Dunn until recently. And so now the, he's an important part of the story. Every time someone pops into the narrative in, in a meaningful way, like I, they get, they get, you get the backstory. So you understand their motivations and their conflicts and their attention the in their lives. And, and Jimmy's a fascinating character. Uh, check out the book. It's out now. Live and Let Die, the inside story of the war between the PGA Tour and Live Golf. Alan Shipnuck, the author, uh, kind enough to spend the last, I don't know, 40 minutes with us. It's a fascinating story. Great work by you as always. And uh, we appreciate it. And by the way, tell Justin Thomas to get over himself, okay? Go win a Ryder Cup or something. I need to- <laughs> you said it, not me, but um, <laughs> cosign. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Hey, we appreciate it. Good luck with the book. Uh, I'm certain it will do well. Uh, it's a fascinating fucking story, man. The PGA Tour and Live merging and Jimmy Dunn being at the center of all of this. Fascinating stuff. We appreciate the time, man. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Stugatz here for my friends over at Miller Lite. A lot has changed over the years. One thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. It was the original light beer, and to this day, it's still the best one. Miller Lite has more of the taste you want and less of the stuff you don't. What I love to do, what me and my friends do, when we're sitting around, we like to enjoy it with ice-cold Miller Lights. Miller Lite keeps it simple, undebatable quality, great taste, only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything you don't need and holds on to what matters most. The original light beer since 1975. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right to your door, visit MillerLite.com slash stew, or you can find it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 96 calories per 12 ounces, fewer cows and carbs than premium regular beer.